I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week, you have a full house. You have me, Dave. You have Leo. Hello. And Huggy. Hey. For the second week in a row, or the second time in a row, Huggy's not had any technical difficulties. Good job, Huggy. Yeah. All right. So as you've been accustomed, we also have a guest. This week's guest is making a habit of collecting USPSA national championships. He also meets the height standards to win national championships. I'm guessing five foot sixteen or five foot seventeen, somewhere in that range. We're rounding. Needless to, yeah, you know, math. Needless to say, he's tall. So let's welcome Mason Lane to the show. How you doing, Mason? Good, man. How are you? Good. So how close was I? Are you five four, five five? I mean, five, six, five, four, six, five, five, 16. You got it. <laughs> five, 16. All right. Spot First on. guess was right. Just cut that man down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a huge discrepancy from the last guest, uh, Gabby Franco, who was like four foot 16. Yeah. She's like, so. yeah. Yeah. She's pretty yeah. small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Mason, what we normally do, I actually take a minute and introduce yourself real quick. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Mason Lane. Uh, I've been shooting for give or take eight or nine years now. I got into it uh, through scouting when I was when I was much younger, and that's helped me out quite a bit. Uh, I've taken it really seriously, so I've gotten a good amount of progress, won a couple of big level matches and stuff like that. So uh, here I am. Awesome. Eight or nine years, that's a pretty good turnaround to be a two-time national champ. Yeah, the first one was uh was due. The second one was was uh not necessarily overdue. So that was nice to do. Okay. Bonus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right. So the first part of the podcast, what we do is we ask you five personal questions Ooh. to get to know the guest. They're kind of like okay. icebreakers. And sometimes they are the most difficult questions that our guests face. Yeah. <laughs> so we are gonna start with number one, which is what's your favorite movie? Oh damn! Probably, See? probably. If I had to just, it's it's hard to pick one. If I, I would have to take one in every genre to be fair. But if I had to just choose one off the top of my head, I'd probably say Goodfellas. I know damn near every line of that Ooh, movie. Nice. Okay. Pretty decent choice. Yeah, that's pretty good, and one, good one we haven't heard yet. Are you excited for Matrix Four? Uh. That might be an overstatement to say excited. I don't even know if I've seen the third Matrix. What? I get that. Oh. Yeah. After the the first one with the I don't know if it was the first or second one where they were you were shooting like Uzis and like three oh eight shells were popping out the side of the thing. I was like, all right, this is getting a little out of hand. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else ever caught that. Man. It, it, exactly. it was just That's, a glitch you know in Matrix. Matrix. No, no, Come on. Guys. That's why it's the Matrix. <laughs> Whoever was programming the Matrix that day didn't understand Calibers. Yeah. So that's all. Yeah. Right. 
<laughs> Your it's favorite metaphysical. Book. Meta. <laughs> favorite book. Oh, favorite book. Uh The Matrix Four. Yeah, the Matrix Four. <laughs> uh I don't know. That's a tough one. And you know, it's not just necessarily because I don't read that much, even though I don't really read that much. I, I, I usually gravitate towards reading st stuff that's at least semi-educational. I don't really tend to read that much just for recreation. I guess the, la the last book I read, I read a book called uh, Poilu. It was about a, it was a, basically a translated uh, journals of a, a, a World War One French soldier who was like skate skated out by the skin of his teeth like a million times and uh, and survived the whole war. Basically, being he was actually a socialist, basically as non-combatant as he could be, while that without being court-martialed, basically, but he was actually a really interesting dude, and he had, you know, pretty harsh criticism for the French government and the, uh, you know, the French military. But obviously, like all of his experiences and you know his wisdom that he gained through the whole thing was pretty amazing. So that's not necessarily my favorite book. But that's the last one I read. Okay, so it's not the USPSA bylaws. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Everyone's <Okay>. favorite read. <laughs> all right. All right, Huggy, throw throw your question at him. Oh, I was going to say it was like, all right, you have to choose. Who has the best sweater? Oh, man. Not the typical question, but you know, just bear in the, mind. Star that's Wars. not the normal Huggy question. Yeah. I mean, Dave's going with that's, pistols on it, so that's pretty cool. Oh, okay. Okay. And I got AR. I mean, it's a little on the nose for this podcast. It's kind I'm of just on saying, the nose. You know, boom. Elegant like literally, boom. Elegant time. That's just I'm putting that out there. All right, now, Huggy, ask him okay. your normal. Okay, my normal question would be, who is your favorite superhero? Uh, probably. I mean, if I have to choose one, probably Spider Man. I guess. I, I don't really follow like the like the whole superhero uh, thing a whole lot, if I'm honest. Okay, struggle. that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. I'm not into the Marvel universe, as as it were. I figured you're going to say, "Oh yeah, that character Mason Lane. You know, he's a great Eric superhero. Fell. He's my favorite superhero." <laughs> uh, I get that. Uh, yeah. 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 Is he sense. an actual superhero or just a cyborg? I mean, I haven't figured it out yet. I don't know. I don't think he's, he's superhuman he either. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Superhuman. There you go. Yeah, that's for sure. He's ridiculous, is what he is. <laughs> it's like the Jason Bourne All right. shooting. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Comparison. Uh it is it or John Wick? I mean it's not a bad one either. Yeah. Fewer technical way. roles with Jason Bourne. Uh favorite gun and caliber. And they don't have they can be completely separate of each other. Oh, uh, well, I shoot a, a shitload of nine millimeter. So I mean, just for the well-roundedness and cheapness of that caliber, probably that one. And my for my favorite gun to shoot is probably my MPX. I have an MPX pistol with a silencer on it that's really fun to shoot. Uh, I also like my my Mark IV pistol just because it's fun to shoot. But uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I'm not super. I'm not as into guns as I am into shooting. I guess you could say. I have guns that I really like shooting, but I don't. I have a relatively unimpressive gun collection, as it were. If you take all the 320s out of my gun collection, it's like there's not that much there. <laughs> so remove all the gray guns and you got nothing yeah there's there's not much after that <laughs> you might want to pull the curtain behind you there yeah leo it's fine 
just ignore everything over here. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I'll just post right. it like this. <laughs> <laughs> so the fifth question, I always like to try to make it more unique to the guest. So they're always different. So I noticed that you have a bachelor's in psychology. Mm -hmm. So in what ways has that helped or hindered your shooting? Well, I mean, the main thing, just going through formal education, you learn a lot about how to organize your thoughts and just through being forced to write down and ideas and stuff like that in a formal way forces you to be better at critical thinking in general. But as far as the specific psychology learning, it's hard to necessarily say in terms of direct takeaways, in terms of concepts, there's very, very few just because most of what you learn through getting a psychology degree is, you know, in part how the mind works like, you know, on just an organizational level, not necessarily a neurological level, but uh, there's not really that much direct like learning that you can say like, Oh yeah, I learned this about the friggin' hippocampus or whatever. And now I know how to, how to do a reload better. It's not like there's that many direct takeaways. Probably the, one of the most interesting concepts I learned was, uh, a psychological phenomenon referred to as flow where basically like if you ever uh, like get into really into a task, like writing on a, on an essay or something like that, or doing whatever, if whatever most people do for their regular job uh, you know, if, if you ever notice, right. like you, you don't notice the passage of time or like a bunch of work gets done without you really thinking about it, or it doesn't require a lot of your conscious attention. Uh, that's something that's, that's only met under really particular conditions, usually a health, like a proper balance of, you know, the challenge that you're undergoing being just challenging enough to really pique your attention and not so challenging that it's frustrating. And then uh, a couple other factors. But that's something that that it, uh, actually translates pretty directly for people once they undergo training for practical shooting as far as how people conceive of their mental game. Like where Lanny would think would say, uh, Lanny Basham, I mean, would say mm -hmm. that you have subconscious skills that you're calling upon. Uh that whole concept of, of flow, as it were, relates to that pretty directly. And, it, and there's a lot of criteria, not of all of which I totally perfectly remember or, or can explain articulately, but that, that whole concept actually underscores, uh, you know, that phenomenon he's referring to a little bit more succinctly than, than he does, in my opinion. So to dispel all of the rumors and conspiracy theories, you did not get a psychology degree to wage head games against JJ Nils, Max, or any of those guys. I'm not above it, but that's not why I got it. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're, you're not taking it out of the toolbox. I like it. It's <laughs> an unintended bonus. Right. <laughs> if it helps, it helps, you know? Right. <laughs> All right. Yep. So when, when did you, when did you shoot your first gun? How old were you? Uh, Probably like seven or so, maybe. Uh, I was my my I my dad was in law enforcement for you know damn near his whole career, and uh, he, so he was always into shooting and he was always in, like a sportsman and like was liked hunting and stuff like that a little bit of shooting, and so he got me into you know like gun like guns understood the concept concepts of gun safety and had me liking shooting pellet guns and stuff like that in the yard really early. So as soon as it was reasonable to, to, to get a kid into shooting actual firearms, I was doing it. I, I didn't start competing until quite a bit later. I shot a couple of steel challenge matches with uh, him and my dad and a couple of his like neighborhood friends when I was in like fourth, maybe fifth grade. But I think I shot like three matches from that point all the way up until when I started competing more seriously when I was like a uh, middle school or whatever. 
But did I did I misunderstand you? Did you say you started shooting competitively in middle school? Yeah, give, give or take. I think in eighth grade, I I was this. So I was in scouting. I got into competing through scouting, and I did you know went through the whole eagle program and all that stuff. And me and some of my peers that were in our uh, troop all had a shared interest in guns and shooting, like playing Call of Duty, like the airsoft guns and stuff like that. So they we started on a, like a an older scouts program specifically for shooting because there was four or five different kids all in our troop that all liked shooting a lot. And so through that and, you know, seeking out more training and shooting more matches and trying different programs and stuff like that, I, I, I got into competing that way. And then just took it, you know, as seriously as I took, as I took getting better at scouting, I took it getting better at shooting. I took it extremely seriously and just continued to get better as I went on with it. Uh, wow. Interesting. So I take it you became an Eagle Scout? Yep. Okay. So do you do you throw yourself a hundred percent into everything you do, regardless of what it is? Or yeah, I have only ever really taken two things seriously, and that was scouting and shooting, respectively. I took being a good student more seriously towards the end of my academic career. But uh, yeah, if I'm going to do something, I might as well do it all the way to the best of my ability. Sort of how I've always approached so, everything. Okay, so how old were you when you started shooting USPSA competitively? I believe 13 or 14. Goodness. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure you definitely started taking it more seriously when I was, when I was 14. Cause I, I, I finished scouting my involvement in scouting and the whole Eagle program and all that really early when I was, I want to say 13. And at the end of that year, into the next year, I started falling more into shooting and I took it increasingly serious through that year. And I was, I was pretty seriously into it by the time I was a, freshman or sophomore in high school how tall were you then i don't know probably like 511 or something ah, that's why okay that's why i get it that's why i didn't get his nationals yet makes sense <laughs> so how old are you now mason 24 okay i remember 24 Ooh, it's got a long time ahead of him to rack up a lot of national championships goodness yeah so so was it your father and the others that you found USPSA? Yeah. So through through that same scouting program I mentioned, we started a venture crew, which at the time was sort of a big deal. Well, I guess at the time the whole BSA in general was a big deal at the time. It's not so much anymore. Uh, we went to a couple of different clinics and stuff like that. The guy, uh, Mike Michaels, who started helped, helped start the program with my dad, uh, he had been involved in, in IDPA and some steel challenges, stuff like that at our local club. He had done it a few times before. He was like a two or three time a year sort of competitor. And so he found some different resources, different people that they could bring in. And the main, one of the main things that dragged me into USPSA was we went down to, uh, the AMU used to host a, a juniors only clinic for like 40 or 50 kids at a time over the course of a long weekend. They did that for like, like eight or nine years. Uh, and so we went down to that. And, uh, and, and all those guys were obviously as talented as those guys are at shooting. And that was when I realized, like, holy crap, like, you can get, like, phenomenally, incredibly godlike good at this sport if you take it really seriously. And after pretty much the first – my first exposure at that point, I, uh, we started, I started traveling around the New England area a little bit more and trying to seek out more matches. Fell in with, you know, people that were good at it, you know, compared to the field in my area and just tried to get as good at it as I could. So have you always lived in the Northeast? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you guys traveled from there to, 
So you guys traveled from there to Columbus? Yeah. Georgia? Right, yeah, to go down to to, uh, to Fort Benning for that for the clinic. Yeah. We went three or four years. It was an annual sort of thing. Wow. Okay. That's impressive. So how how much do you think that um played into being a national champion? Do you I think mean, you would have been a national champion where you or where you are now had you not attended those? I never would have even been involved with shooting if I hadn't attended those. I mean, I would have found okay. something else to do at this point. Like, there's, there's, so a, there's a constellation of factors that I could pin that on, just for the fact that I, I never would have, I never even would have found USPSA most likely if I hadn't gone down to that clinic because USPSA was non-existent within New Hampshire specifically at the time. We, I had the the closest club that there was 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 Harvard, which is about an hour and a half away in Northern Mass, and then in the other direction, Augusta, Maine, which is about two and a half hours. So it was if I had never found out that the sport was even a thing, I never would have taken any farther than I did. Unfortunately, I had parents that are willing to drive me all over Tarnation to go to go to local matches. Yeah, so how long is? You... <clears throat> I was going to say. I was going to say that. So you went down to Amherst. Uh, was that where you were shooting at down there in Mass? It was in uh the the club is Harvard Sportsman's Club in in Boxborough was I think the closest club at the time. When I, that's near the Amherst area, yeah, it's all yeah. it's in Northern Mass in the outskirts of Boston. Right, right. Okay. I just went to college up there for a brief moment. So yep. uh, I was up in Vermont for a brief moment. And yep. uh, so I There's got to learn There's a couple clubs the out there too. Yeah. 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 So I got to learn the area and uh, got to eat some great maple syrup up there. Yep. Yeah. They're proud <laughs> of that up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when did USPSA come to New Hampshire then? Uh, Man, I'm not going to give adequate credit credit to the guys that started the program, but probably in like either 20, 2016 or 2017, give or take. I think they they started wow. the program there. I think it was 2016. It might have been earlier than that. I really can't remember. But there was it was quite a while where there was no. They we had a really serious. Right at the time I started at my local club, which is only like 20 minutes from me, they started some guys started a really serious IDPA program. Like it had been a big deal for a long time, but they took it to a new level where they the production value went way up and they hosted a really serious uh, state match. And there was a lot of, you know, internal friction from, from the club in terms of like, you know, politics and stuff like that, which ultimately, you know, made the board and the club more progressive towards practical shooting as a concept. And so it took a long time before it, uh, it USPSA got rolled in. And now our club is like a, a predominantly a practical shooting club. Okay. Interesting. So did you ever shoot IDPA or any of the other shooting sports? Yeah, I started off in IDPA. I still do some. I, I started off in IDPA. I guess I started in Steel Challenge, really. That's mainly what we were focused on through the youth group, uh, just because there were scholastic programs where kids can compete against other, other shooting teams at the time. And uh, so I did, when I started branching out on my own, I went to IDPA matches just because that was what was in the area. And the second I, I found USPSA, I instantly fell in love with that. And I continued to compete pretty much 50-50 between IDPA and USPSA on a local level for quite a while through like 2014. I was pretty well split half and half, obviously training pretty much 100% USPSA, but participating in just as many matches either way. I, I feel like training for USPSA takes care of the IDPA side of house. So yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of reasons for that, but there's no doubt. Right. Any two gun, anything like that? 
I got into three gun. I spent enough money to get into three gun and then realized that it was a mistake. Uh, it's, just, <laughs> it's not a number one is it's, it's, is not, and never has been a big deal in the new England area because we don't have, mm. we got, you know, three ranges in the whole state that where you can shoot past 200 yards. So it's, there's, it's just wow. not, there's not a lot of demand for it. Number one, there's not a lot of facilities that can facilitate long range rifle shooting number two. And, uh, yeah, it's it's to me it's it's not as interesting. It's not as technically demanding as USPSA is. Like I've always liked that, you know. Every uh, you think about the fact that a three gun stage will have a 40, 50 second stage as par for the course, and you're shooting essentially the same number of rounds as you would on on a practical shooting stage. It's like each the value of of each second just becomes very little, and it seems like a lot more of the fun is derived from just pulling the trigger than it is the actual skills test and the latter has always been the part that I found interesting. So I, I have found when I shoot IDPA, I like to see if I can find ways to kind of cheat the system. If you know what I mean? Like how can I turn this into something closer to a USPSA match? Right. I found when I do that, I actually place very high. Yeah. I there's, I still participate in IDPA a little bit. There's just, I've, I've been burned by, by, you know, crappy rules calls and miscellaneous, mm -hmm. you know, problems in the sport that everyone's familiar with uh, more times than, than I care to share. So I, I made a promise to myself that I would never get on a plane to shoot another IDPA match. I will only travel to, you know, championship matches that I can drive to within like two hours. So I still shoot all the majors that are in our area and they're, they're really fantastic matches, but I, I still think I get a lot out of it. Like I shot an IDPA match uh, just the week before I went to nationals this last year, which is like, obviously if I, if I didn't think it was beneficial, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, I think right. the, the main thing you can get out of it once your skills are sort of established. I mean, as a, its own its own scoring system and the culture and the pacing is not really productive for getting much better at practical shooting. Because if you can you can grip, half ass grip the gun and you can slow roll the trigger and stack zeros, you're going to do really well no matter what. And it doesn't really that doesn't really necessitate or promote getting much better at your level. Where USPSA almost no matter how bad you are at it, there's always another small step to be taken to get better just based on how the, the way the, the scoring works. But I do think once your skills are sort of established in that sport, it, it forces you to, to think outside the box in a way that I think is constructive. It forces you to be extremely disciplined. Obviously like a Charlie is, is hurts your score the same way as a Mike does on an average USPSA stage. And above all, it's like, it's, they do wacky shit all the time. Like it's so the customs and procedures as far as how they run the match, like how you make ready, you know, how all the props work. And it's, Honestly, even the fact that like the officiating is is a little bit different on every stage you go to, just based on how much interpretation of the rules there is, it forces you to work in a different sort of headspace than a regular USPSA match does. Like it requires you to be more flexible. So I've I get some something out of it every time, and it doesn't hurt either that the matches in our area are really good. Yeah, I find that there tends to be a lot more props at those types of things. So if you do run into them somewhere else at a uspsa match it's like eh, no big deal mm -hmm. so yeah they, they have amazing production value in the matches in our area they use like electronic electronic flashers and laser beams and crap like that to activate moving targets and all kinds of stuff they they, they really do it up hard wow it sounds like i need to make a trip to new hampshire to shoot an idpa match 
Absolutely. Now all you I can, can think is like laser beams being shot at you. Like yeah. it's, <laughs> yeah. no, they, they use like, attached to sharks. They yeah. use like the uh, like you know like like the motion sensor beams. They'll use those like to you gotta like run through this hallway and like you run through the beam and it triggers like some you know moving target like later on in the stage and stuff like that. Like electronic delay. That's impressive. Stuff like that. They do. That's pretty cool. Yeah, they do a lot of crazy crap. If you can make it up to the New England regional match, that's always an amazing, amazing match. They host Ooh, I love the Mason Dixon line. That's pretty. That's tough. <laughs> yeah. That, that does make it tough. Yeah, for sure. I understand. I mean, it well, took I, us a little bit to take our state back. So, I'm thinking about is when he talks about all these lasers and targets moving out. I'm thinking like Men in Black. All of a sudden, that <laughs> thing swings down. You're like, what the? <laughs> Huggy, like, you can't shoot a little girl. Ah, oh, damn it! Carrying a book. Not cool, well, man. She, she took my money. It's true. <laughs> So, so Mason, um, obviously in October, you won nationals. Um, do you take an off season? Yeah. Yeah. I took it. Uh, it's just pretty much just ended just now. So like right here at this podcast, uh, from this week or so. Yeah. It's okay. uh, I, I, the week after nationals, I went and shot another, I didn't touch a gun the whole week after nationals. I was just riding the high of doing good and stuff. I went and shot another match and product shot a production match the week after that uh, with some friends. And then I, I literally did not touch a gun in a training capacity. Well, it's not totally true. I, I did like, you know, two days a week, dry fire, you know, and nothing else really up until just about this time now, which I, I, I can't force myself to do nothing. I just get itchy. I like doing it too much to, to do nothing. But for me, that's an extremely relaxed training regimen. So I'm just now getting back into doing, to doing something with a gun every single day, doing, as much live fire as weather permits in this area. Yeah, I imagine it gets a tad bit chilly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're on a warm going- spell right now this week. It's it's getting up around 45, 50 every day this week, which is pretty good for us this time of year. So I'm going to get out say. and shoot as much as I can, but it's it's time to get back on the train. Um, did you say up around 40? Like, yeah, that's 40, high. Five, yeah, 45, that's not 50. 50. Okay. That's normal. That's, that's New England weather. Sure. So you win nationals. The next week you go and you shoot a production match with some buddies. Mm-hmm. Can can you shoot and just have fun, or are you still going to try to win the match? Oh, I'm yeah. I'm not going to have fun if I shoot like crap. That's for sure. Okay. I, I didn't. I t- shot. We did one live fire session, like to basically to make sure my gun worked before I left, and that was that was that. And I still shot good and stuff, uh, which you know is nice. It's nice to go for if you're switching from one iron sighted division to another, is it can only be so different. But uh, it, it was nice to go and shoot well, of course, and have fun with with my friends. When you have fun, is this like when like we have fun where we're making fun of each other for our performance? Like I have to imagine your friends <laughs> shooting with you is really embarrassing for them. It depends who the <laughs> friends oh, are. Mason's doing so much better than us. I'm just gonna go home. We went and shot. So the match was a gridiron match, which is they out in Linden, California. They run. It's a single stack versus. It's only two divisions, single stack in production, and it's three person okay. teams. And basically, your aggregate score is a team score. So it's it was to to trash my friends for sucking at shooting would have been not productive for my score either because it was still I needed them to to win. But somebody carried the team. Somebody Someone has to be LeBron. Right. Yeah. I don't yes. love the guy, but somebody's got to be LeBron. <laughs> Yes. Okay. That's fair. I get it. No. Like for us, Dave's LeBron and we're everybody else. Yes. It's cool. Yes. He's M- he's MJ with the flu in the finals. 
Yep. Mm, that was heroic. This is more like MJ uh, playing baseball. <laughs> us, yes. Yeah, not as good. I'm talking about Mason, not us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> so, okay, so you, you just started back, we'll say, getting on that horse. Um, when do you – have you already started scheduling everything for next year and planning oh, yeah. everything out? Yeah, absolutely. When did that start? When, when matches are announced at this point, I mean, it, it's, it's come such that if you don't plan, start planning your schedule, like in October of, of the year prior, it's, you're not going to get into the matches you want to shoot like dragon's cup and, you know, other matches like that are, are already full, full up. So there's some that I'm of course going to shoot that are, that are haven't even been announced yet. Like the, the registration for the nationals and stuff like that hasn't come out yet. I'm sure all the matches that I want to shoot later in the year, haven't been announced yet, but you basically just have to be on it all the time, paying attention to what's coming available. Uh, we really don't have a choice. So do you just hang out on practice score all the time, waiting to see if the match, or where are you going to figure out where these matches are coming online? Well, it's, I mean, what you want to shoot depends on a lot of factors. Like for me, there's matches that I'll pretty much always shoot just because they're easy to get to. And I know they're always good. Like I'll, unless I have a major conflict, I'll pretty much always shoot whatever nationals is available. As long as it's in a halfway interesting division, I'll always shoot, you know, quality section matches that are at least near my area that are like a six or seven hour drive or less. Uh, and then, you know, I'll try to shoot one or two area matches a year. If I feel like it, usually I do. Usually there's not much else going on. And also too, I'll try to plan matches around places I want to go. Like I'm the February, the first thing in February, I'm going down to Puerto Rico to shoot a match. Uh, which is, should be pretty cool. I haven't been down there before, but everyone says it's a really awesome place to go, and it's obviously a lot warmer than New Hampshire that time of year. So yeah. But we learned that Puerto Rico is Ipsic. So is it an Ipsic match? I don't think so. Based on on, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a USPSA level one match. Based on what I've okay. seen and the fact they're posting like their their the specifics of their division rules and stuff like that on their Instagram, which leads you to believe if it was standardized, they wouldn't need to do that. Well, here's a question for you. And I'm just kind of backing up to when we were talking about weather issues, um, being up in New Hampshire, it does get really cold. So, and Leo and I had the fun of actually shooting in the snow ourselves. So I'm going to ask, what is the coldest? Have you actually gone out and shot a local match or a competition up there? So probably the coldest ever, uh, and they do a, a, a that same IDPA club I talked about that runs out of Harvard. They do, uh, yeah. they call it the cold turkey match. They run the day after Thanksgiving. And I went down mm -hmm. and shot that one year where right after they had gotten like four inches of snow overnight, and it was probably 20, 25 or 30 degrees of the, the entire nope. day. They run a match. I haven't ever shot it. They run a match called the Frozen Chosen on, on January 1st every year up in, up in the Augusta, or the, uh, not Augusta, the Bangor Club way up in Maine. Amazing. Oh, like yeah. the club Way up in up Vermont, the club up in Vermont at uh, Green Mountain, they they run matches all year long. They run a month to match every single month. And like like wow. just last month, the other week, they had like eight inches of snow on the ground. They're like shoveling to make space for the stage. And personally, Listen, that's that's too much for me. I don't I don't do that. Yeah, when the Russians invade, those guys can be the Wolverines and they can <laughs> do whatever they want. That's not normal. Yeah, yeah no, I, <laughs> I don't. My threshold generally for training or shooting is like if it's not going to be at least 40 like it's i'm probably not really going to get anything out of it so i haven't shot a match or train when it was much under that that in quite that a while it's still too cold man it's still cold, outside yeah. puerto rico you don't have that problem that's true uh no yeah 
Puerto Rico, like 70 is cold. So mm -hmm. you should be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I noticed um, that you hand load your nine. Mm -hmm. Do you hand load anything other than nine? Yeah, I load 40. I just bought a press to load 40 with just because I started shooting a little bit more limited. It seemed like a sensible thing to do for cost Good savings. Man. Okay, so I was going to ask, is that so it's just about cost saving and that's it? Yeah, it's, I mean, to buy factory ammo that's reasonable for competing with, even for nine, is pretty cost prohibitive. I have a pretty good deal with, you know, sponsors that make ammo really cheap for me to make. So that's what I do. All right. So uh, I know you're aware of this, but I saw on your Instagram that you were saying you're normal. I saw a couple different things about hand loading on your Instagram. I saw one where you're using a 147 grain round nose. It looks like that's the newest thing. But before you were using a 125 grain truncated cone. Mm -hmm. Now, why the switch? It it really doesn't matter to me that much. I I load my if you if you grab both the loads that I have between those two projectiles side by side and shot them side by side, you probably wouldn't be able to tell which one was which if you didn't look at the mag as it went in the gun. So I, I load my okay. my 147 loads to like like 140 power factor. The point that it's I like it to be at least a little bit of snap to it. The nice thing about loading 147s is you can you get a lot of extra power factor out of not a lot of extra powder, and without a lot of a really sharp increase in, in felt recoil. So that's why I marginally prefer heavier rounds. So I mean to get if you say you load a 125 grain round to where it feels like it's not crazy crazy soft. I mean if you load a 125 grain round to where it feels really soft, it's going to be like scraping the, the the floor on power factor. Reload it to where it has just a little bit of bump to it. It's going to feel like it's going to be like 130, 132. And if you know, mm -hmm. it, if you load a 147 to that same approximate feeling, it's going to be up around 140. So it gives you a, a huge safety net for no real deterioration and, 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 you know, fell recoil. So I really don't care that much. I, I'll load either, either way. I've loaded 135s, TCs, 125s, the 147s. I've been loading 147s for like two years now just because for that exact reason. It gives you a really fast safety net. Now, you also said something that I found very interesting. You said the with the 356 diameter round nose that the wider heads are a bit more accurate out of some SIGs. Mm -hmm. Now, in what – I mean, how much ac better accuracy are you looking at? So like all, all factors held equal, right? On like a good day with a proper barrel and everything like that, you're not going to notice a difference offhand. It's not like it's a huge, like drastic change in mechanical reliability. But when like the Legions came out, for example, when they launched the 320 X5 Legions, where they have that ported, they have a little uh, port in the, the top of the barrel, the loaded chamber indicator. On some of those runs, they were deteriorating a lot faster than in others. And it was pretty obvious that some of the fatter bullets were not showing those symptoms nearly as badly or as quickly. So that was when I started using them and it's worked really good ever since. And I noticed the same thing, like even before then, back when the first run of X fives came out, came to market in like I don't know, 2017 or something like that. I don't, I don't really remember. Uh, like the silver, the silver barrel ones, the first run of them when I was loading extreme bullets at the time in the three, five, five. And like, there was just mixed, a mixed bag on accuracy without any, 
you know, crimping abnormalities or anything like that. I've always noticed that the fatter bullets and the SIGs have filled up the chamber a little bit better, a little bit, a little bit more consistent on, uh, on accuracy. The three five fives, was it enough of a degradation of accuracy that it would concern you at like nationals? Yeah. Yeah. De depending oh, on, wow. on, on what like batch and what barrel and stuff like that. Yeah. That's, that's why I, I use the fat ones now. And I haven't seen any coming out that have issues in quite a while. But there, there was a period there where it was definitely noticeable. Okay. Now, have you talked to Phil or anybody at SIG about that? No, honestly. Uh, <laughs> you know, to the best of my knowledge, uh, SIG, SIG builds guns that are intended to work with jacketed rounds, be them FMJs or JHPs, because that's what most people shoot. So, I mean, sh shooting coated bullets to start with is already something they're probably not really that worried about because that's not something very many people are doing. So if you're taking a straight lead bullet and making it a little bit fatter to fill up the chamber better, to me that just makes sense. Okay. So you think it? You think it's just getting better grip on the lands then? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely gets that a makes sense. Bit better contact. Okay. <clears throat> now, is there? A, a, there obviously isn't the need for super accurate rounds in practical pistol shooting. But I assume, is there a, do you actually ever do any like um, accuracy testing with your ammo and your gun? I mean, the most extensive I'll get with it is zeroing a gun, which I'll do generally speaking. Okay. Just try, I'll throw a white paster on a target and try to, you know, throw the tightest group I added that I can at 20 yards. And if I put up a, a four inch group shooting groups at 20 yards, I'm, I'm generally speaking, that's about as accurate as I am. Like if I can hit consistently hit the A box on a full size target at fifty yards, like that's as accurate as as a gun really needs to be. Okay, yeah, I was just trying to figure out where, what you're looking at, what you're able to hold at what distance. So that, I mean, especially with the dot, I'll notice it. if the shot doesn't show up where the dot was, I'll I'll notice it. Or if you know the, the holes look weird or anything like that, I'll notice it. But that's it doesn't need to be that accurate. Right. Ex exactly. Uh... So, what was it? Nationals two years ago. You, your left hand was broken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Now, now, how? How? Walk me through this. You were going over a fence and somehow landed on your hand instead of your feet. Yeah. Yeah. In a nutshell, that is what happened. I was jumping <laughs> over, jumping over a fence from about chest height. And the fence buckled like you read about, and I landed uh, oh. hands, hands down on both hands from about chest height. And uh, wow, left, left okay. wrist got stove in pretty good. I didn't think it was broken at first, and then it was like you know an hour and a half, two hours later, like I still can't feel my fingers. I'm like, all right, something's wrong. Let's go figure out what it is. And it was a uh, like some something of some sort of navicular bone in my wrist that was they, they basically like one of the worst wrist injuries you can have in terms of healing time for the fact that it's only mm. blood supplied from one end. They told me pretty much straight up, like right off the jump when, as soon as I got to see an actual doctor, he's like, you're going to need to put a screw in this. If you want it to heal faster than like, I can't guarantee it'll heal faster than six months unless you just put a screw in it. I'm like, screw it up, dude, let's go. And so I had to shoot both nationals. The first one, I was just in a cast awaiting, getting, getting it worked on. And then the second nationals was right after I got it worked on. Oh, Actually, wow. no, wait, scratch that. It was, I got it worked on like, I want to say two weeks before the first match. And then it was 
getting pretty well healed up for the second. Okay. Dude, I'm going to so tell did, you right now, that had to hurt. I mean, come on. Yeah, it wasn't and everything. I didn't I, – so I just shot straight up with one hand. I didn't even try to feign a, a support hand grip with my left hand just because I didn't want to stove it in any, any more than it already was. The only thing I did with the left hand was reload with it, and I was hesitant even to do that, especially for the first match, but I just kind of did like this like bird claw, like three-finger grip just to <laughs> finagle a mag out of the thing and sort of toss it into the gun and like whack it with a cast or whatever. It was – it was a mess, but I wasn't I wasn't gonna jeopardize the healing time at all. And at the time when I shot that first match, I was thinking there was a small chance I could get it healed up so that I could shoot production with with both hands. And the reason I did all that is I I made a hitch decision before IPSC nationals in July of that year to shoot uh, the op- optics division, shoot carry optics heavy, as it were, in carry optics and for IPSC. As I wanted to try to qualify for both teams because if given the choice, I'd rather shoot CO. Uh, but I didn't necessarily get that choice because then I, I was in a position where I had to to, to grab to qualify for either team I had to put up a respectable percentage in, in the American Nationals and CO and production respectively so I didn't have a choice I had to go shoot them and try to get the best percentage I could or I never would have done it yeah as, as someone who's broken their wrist I, I get that and I'm impressed yeah it's, it's I'll say fun. you'll never get better at one-handed shooting than you will when you don't have functional use of of the other hand i got real good at left-handed dribbling in basketball because of that yep i bet and my left tricep is still bigger than my right one because of that (laughs) (laughs) don't worry about why just he still can't dribble a basketball but it's okay not right-handed anymore and i'm right-handed it's embarrassing so did you have a short arm cast like below your elbow so you're able to bend your arm normally yeah it was just like just below my elbow so it was I say it was. I had use of everything except basically my my wrist. So there was no way I could crank it around to get a support hand grip, and I didn't have the strength, obviously, at that point to do anything with it anyway. The only thing I stood to do was break it worse, so I didn't bother even trying to use it. Right. I tore uh, all the ligaments in my wrist in freshman year of high school playing flag football at school, and they ended up giving me a cast all the way up to my mid bicep. Mm-hmm. So it was like a, I couldn't move it. It was like that. I went through four of them because I kept playing football, but it's all yep. good. Yeah, soft tissue injuries are, are hard to fix like that, though. They're yeah. Yeah, it took a long time. So I I did notice that you – you so even in the second nationals, were you still using that pterodactyl grip? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I, I still didn't have use of the hand. I was in a soft cast, so I was able to pop the thing off like when I was just walking mm-hmm. around. But anytime I started shooting, I threw the thing back on. When I went to sleep and stuff, I put it back on. Were you ever worried about even tripping and falling on a stage with your, with your wrist? Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, as as Florida. It's hot as hell. So. Right. <laughs> Got it. Sweating through the thing. <laughs> yeah, at any point right. where you're like, ah! Like trying to make a pterodactyl sound because that would have been pretty cool. Oh, that would have been pretty cool. <laughs> like you got on video. you got the reach anyways, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I need to need a proper shirt for that, I think. <laughs> Fair. So transitioning right into that, obviously you qualified for the world shoot. Yep. What are you shooting? If it ever happens, what are you shooting? Uh, so I'm qualified for production. I qualify for both teams, but I was offered a squat spot for production, so that's what I'm going to do. If it ever happens, okay. like you said, I'm not convinced it's ever going to happen. 
and I'm hearing that more and more that it's just people are losing their enthusiasm and, and belief that it's even going to happen. You know what yeah, they should frankly, do is like you could run a virtual marathon, you know, where you just set everything up and then they track it on your like your watch or something. They should just do that at this point. Just be like, everybody set up the courses of fire, shoot it, time it, yeah. send it to us. We'll figure out. Like a postal one. match. You know what I mean? Like at this postal point, world match. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not really convinced it's ever going to happen. At this point, I'm kind of apathetic to it just because it's been going on for so long. And it doesn't – I mean, it's like they they had to build the range where that match was supposed to be constructed. So, like, the Thai government or IPSC or whatever entities that be have a lot of money tied up in making it happen. But it, it's – the politics involved are, are bigger than those people. So, well, yeah, it's just like the Olympics. The, all the cities that ever do the Olympics, and they build all these facilities, and then you you show up there a couple years later, and they're just Bleh. there's only so much you can do about it. Yes, yeah, it's but it is what it is. I, I feel like as long as Fauci is where he's at, and you have the same people running the World Health Organization. We're never going to get away with masks and social distancing and, and any of that other stuff. So I, I don't even see, you know, half the countries aren't going to let you in. Right. And, you know, it's from, from what I've, the people that I've talked to that are sort of have their thumb a little bit more on the pulse than I do. It seems like pretty much all the Americans involved feel the same way about it that, that you do and that I do, that they're not going to, you know, they're not going to get poked just so that they can go do other stuff. And like, they're going to resist that for as long as they possibly can. So it's not really seeming like it's going to probably happen. And I, I would imagine that there's lots of other countries that feel the same way. Yeah. But then you don't, well, get, to, sucks, you don't get to go to but... Bangkok, which is sad. I mean, I've never been. So. I wasn't going to go there before the match. So, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> not, not missing anything, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who knows? You'll, be, you'll, put, you'll put on one of those ocular glasses and do virtual reality. Yeah. I'd rather do it for real, but. Maybe yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Trust me, I, yeah. I'd like to go myself, but you know. Yeah. Well, we all know that's not going to happen. So let's right. pump the brakes, man. Well, I'd like to go well, too. I mean, I want I a unicorn. Pay. Let's talk about impossible stuff. That's never going to happen, Huggy. He, I mean, Huggy can on. go and pull. Huggy can go and, and pull the rickshaw for Mason. There you go. See, there you go. You're welcome, Mason. You now. No one said you had to shoot. I could probably find someone to do that cheaper in Thailand than I could in America. <laughs> <laughs> He's balling on a budget like the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're honest. Uh, I mean, sweatshop labor. I, I mean, come on. I I will say that we will have to stop a few places to get something to eat on the way. But you know, hydrate. <laughs> Zero chance that body's gonna do well in Thailand. Get some good pad Seattle. The yeah, let's be morning. let's be real for a second. <laughs> Sorry, but this happens every every now and then. We get derailed with stuff like that. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, I'm good. Right. Well, I was I was doing better. I was recovering, and then I saw Chris laughing uncontrollably, and I lost it again. <laughs> So before we get to we're professionals. <laughs> before we get to lane shooting and training, I want to jump to the current situation in the USPSA. Um, uh, I, obviously, I know that you feel that Foley should have been removed, um, but I almost feel like 
And I commented on this on social media and I saw that you had liked it was that I almost feel like it started an avalanche of other things. And it's just kind of, it seems like it's blown up more than anything has settled down. Yeah. I, well, sure. I mean, it's the issue we're fine. And I am sick to death of talking about this because at this point, I think everyone that is ever going to give a shit knows everything they need to know about it. But, uh, it's it, it, the issue clearly didn't lie specifically with Mike, right? Like it's right. the reputational liability that he posed to the organization pretty well lied with Mike, but the institutional uh, inbreeding that was happening there was not epidemic to just that guy. It was epidemic to everyone involved that supported all the crap he was doing and, you know, paid him and gave him bonuses all along the way. And that's becoming increasingly obvious because people are still talking about it and it's being exposed what their attitudes actually are, which is you know, just, just as alarming and just as non-constructive as Foley's attitude was, or just that much more diplomatic about expressing how they feel about it. It's the only difference. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's been coming out. It's very interesting. <clears throat> so are you hoping that the rules changes are, squashed for a bit like let the rules stay as they are for a while or yeah everyone has as everyone is if says if they were king for a day they do something different with the rules they carve up divisions different ways and shit like that and it's to me i'd be totally satisfied to see a, a rules change hiatus for the indefinite future like i i think we have some stuff that's probably a little bit you know wacky or whatever but it's like it, i would rather see it stabilize at least for a couple of years before I'm really interested in seeing anything major change, even though I think some of the stuff is pretty goofy. I will, I will ask um, one more thing about like with the bylaw change. I know in the past, so before I was a part of the USPSA, like when, when Phil Strader was the president and we had him on and we talked to him, you know, he talked about how, USPSA didn't feel like he was giving them enough time and Remington didn't feel like he was giving them enough time. Yep. So I like the idea of a full-time president, but they seem to be, they seem to want to go back to the part-time president. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's an inherent, every, any given idea that's expressed by most, most of the players and the board is inherently contradicted by their own take, you know, 20 minutes before they were put on the spot. But yeah, that's, that is the direction they want to go. Uh, it seems that they want to go back to the executive direct directorship as long as they have control over who's appointed to that position. Mm. Which, whether or not it's it's a good idea it remains to be seen. You know, I'm extremely close friends with Phil, and he he liked the idea of having a, an executive directorship when he was in. He thought that it worked relatively well for all intents and purposes, except for some, you know, pretty serious mistakes that were made at the hands of that person. But again, it's no matter who you put in a position, they can make mistakes. Absolutely. Okay. Do you think ZUSPSA is helping or hurting the situation? I mean, no one, no one would know about the situation if they didn't speak about it. Right. Yep. It's like for all the hubaloo, it's like, it's, we would, would no one would be talking about it if they didn't if they didn't post about it so someone's got to shed light on the situation and you know it's i think people confuse demeanor with intent way too much and think that just because someone comes across like an a-hole that they don't have you know positive intentions 
that's certainly the attitude of the board, right? Is that if someone has any criticism, they must be an asshole, not that they have, you know, a different direction or good intentions for the future of the sport. That's not epidemic just to that page. It's, you know, anyone that's being vocal complaining about what's going on. It's because they care. If they didn't care, they wouldn't be speaking about it. For sure. All right. So what is lane shooting and training? I had to call the company something. <laughs> okay. So, uh, that's, that's what I went with. And I, I don't necessarily, uh, now that I'm married to the name, I'm, I don't necessarily uh, embrace it. Way too many people think that I'm running law school application and testing. But uh, <laughs> okay, that's what it is. Uh, so I do classes, both you know, individual local classes in my own area. I do a little bit of online coaching. And I, of course, run you know, group classes wherever people will have me or willing to set up a course. It's uh, just like any other traveling instructor, dude, I'm doing, doing that as much as I can. You know, someone sets up a class for me with 10 to 12 people or so I'll go to them, teach the class, do my thing. And uh, everyone will have a good time. And that's just the company that I do it through. I had to call the company something. Okay. So you, uh, well, you, you kind of answered the next question then. So you do online, Mm -hmm. video review you do yep. in-person classes yes uh, okay yep generally now, speaking generally speaking for for the uh for the in-person classes someone will set up a class you know someone that wants to host the class will set it up they'll rake in another 11 people or what have you and we'll do two-day class at their at a club of their choosing uh and it'll we'll go from you know, however long people want to go. Generally speaking, we'll try to do eight hour days as long as people are still engaged and wanting to do it. And we'll go everything through everything from, you know, basically the core fundamentals, which is not necessarily the basics, but that's the building blocks. And we'll go all the way up through uh, continued applied fundamentals and through more and more advanced stuff. And generally speaking, the focus for people, the big revelation people have is typically found within that first morning when we're working on the most basic drills. Okay. Now how much have you, um, or have you, I should say, have you modified your classes because of the ammo apocalypse? I haven't, I honestly have not needed to that much. When I first had people taking my classes, they were going through more. And of course, as, as people get tighter and tighter on primers, I just basically give people dry fire warmups as I'm introducing drills. You just try to give people to time to try the thing out, dry fire, explain to them how to dry fire any drill. Uh, and give them a moment or two to sort of visualize and prepare as, as before you actually do live fire attempts on drills. And that slows down the course, the pace of the course a little bit. And it basically just gives people more reps with the same amount of ammo expended. But of course, that's a good thing to be doing in training, whether or not I'm, I'm watching you or whether or not you're paying me to watch you. You know, it's slowing down training and, and, use, and instituting dry fire policy as far as visualizing when you're doing training is a good idea no matter what, because that's you wouldn't expect yourself to do anything in a match that you didn't visualize or didn't think about ahead of time anyway. Well, and, and that's another part of the question is like, do you, is there a section in your two day class where you talk about visualization and how to visualize stages and, and mm -hmm. how to work that? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, visualization isn't, people think about visualization because they, they think about it as, as a component of their, their mental game as it applies to stages. And it's, it goes way beyond that. To me, if I'm teaching someone and they're not like taking, if they do an attempt and they set up to do another attempt, I want to see like deliberate 
attention given to revisualizing the stage and like making assessments on what needs to happen for the next run, right? Because you would never attempt another string in a classifier without taking a moment to collect yourself, do whatever nonsense you're going to do and revisualize and collect your thoughts, right? It's the same thing. It's it, it, There's no task too simple to be done in dry fire or live fire training that doesn't necessitate some level of visualization to make sure it's going to go well. Not Nothing. So it makes sense to do the same thing in training. It's you, you train the exact same way as you would if it was a stage. However, I did do that my first year of shooting at the Virginia State match. I had a reshoot. I, I was like, yeah, I can go right now. Didn't redo anything and ended up missing two arrays, like like not shooting at them. So I had failed to shoot at four targets. Yep. First yeah. stage of the day. Done. Mm-hmm. I learned the hard way. Yes. So I, I kind of feel like I've, I forget who it is. I, I spoke with about this a couple of people actually, but I almost feel like you could take stage breakdown and you don't even have to, you could just, you know, fake stages on a drawing on a dry erase board. But I feel like that alone, if it's for USPSA shooters could be an all day class. As far as stage I, planning goes. Stage planning and like, how would you, if you come up, like coming up to a stage, like take a state match or, you know, not necessarily a level one, but you could practice it there. But how are you approaching it? What are you looking at? You know, how do you determine um, where you're going to start? If it's one of those, like, for example, the new classifier that came out, shoot, I don't remember the, the number, but it was actually last year's nationals where, you had two walls and you had three targets in the middle and then you had targets on either end. And most people ran to their left to the far end and then started shooting there. But the starting position was in the middle. Like why would, you know, even talking about that, like why run all the way to the end and then shoot coming across instead of drawing and immediately shooting the targets in front of you. you know, there's just so many different nuances about a stage breakdown or how you would gain time here, gain time there. I think uh, in all honesty, like most people, especially on the lower skill level end, they, they read into the, a lot of the options a lot because they think there's people have this idea that there's a, a strictly mathematical or scientifically correct way to do most stages. And in all honesty, the scientifically and mathematically correct way to do it is based on your own training and experience, right? By leveraging your own strengths and knowing what you're more comfortable with usually is what dictates what the plan's going to be more so than what is necessarily the mathematically best way to do things. If that makes sense. I know at least in my own training, I find my, in my own shooting, I find myself doing plans that like even when I'm shooting like with guys on a super squad, I find myself doing stuff that's different from other guys. Like you know, not shooting into a position so that I can make the exit out of a position easier, or something like that. Right? Like things that, in terms of strictly trying to shoot the stage to put up the best possible factor, like in ignoring your own preferences, would make more sense. But I'd rather play to my own strengths and my own preferences, even if it's not necessarily the quote unquote best way to do it. And like you know, in a symmetrical stage, like shooting to just choosing to start in the center or choosing to go to one end and work in one direction is usually an example of that. Like, you know, whether or not you shoot a symmetrical stage left to right or right to left is based on, you know, your own comfort 
And if, it, if you're going to be more comfortable and not have to think about it quite, quite so hard by doing it in one direction versus another, even if it's might be slightly better the other way, then that's worth something. And I don't think people usually know how to, you know, the, if you don't have a lot of training and experience to call upon in terms of knowing what's more comfortable and predictable for you, then that's the part that people are missing. It's not really the ability to like really read into every single detail. In a lot of cases, like the more you ignore all the extraneous details, the better you're going to be. Hmm. So I heard two things there. One, play to your strengths and two, execute properly. Yeah. And of course the execution okay. part comes from the visualization <laughs> in a lot of cases, right? Like you have to have the skills to back up whatever program you write for yourself, but the visualization is writing a program that you're then going to click run on. And uh, when I've taught stage planning in the past, that's like how I spend 90% of my time. Cause most of the people I get that want to learn stage planning, uh, you know, not to generalize too much, but are usually like a class or less and they want to get better at stage breakdown because they think that the plan is the difference between them and someone who's beating them. And that's usually not the case. It's usually at least at a minimum, the ability to put together a smooth run, even at their current skill level. And that comes from having a plan that they know and a plan that they can call upon without thinking about it too hard, which comes from visualization. Okay. There's a secret sauce right there. I Love like it. it. Cause I'm going to tell you, I'm going <laughs> to tell you right now, you know, from a, uh, a shooter who is not a class or below. Close. Yeah. And I mean, I'm at the below part <laughs> way below. That's a really good information because I, I will have to say, you know, from, from a person who played football for many, many years, I'm always looking at the playbook first, you know, always looking at the playbook, looking at, the, you know, and saying, okay, this is where I got to go. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Then, once I get on the field and we're practicing, then I'm like, okay, I need to go five yards deep and then cut. So, you know, just it's different out here now because I've got to switch and say I don't have a playbook you know, to look at prior to. I mean, yes, so at nationals and all that stuff, you, you do get a, uh, a matchbook, but I've actually just learned at the – not this past nationals, but the nationals before that that playbook – got changed. And I was like, uh, that just screwed me, you know, cause because <laughs> you had the plan down like on paper, right. And then you show up and it doesn't look anything like that. Exactly. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, yeah I'm done. Yeah. And to <laughs> me, know, that's, and we started on a different section. We were in the wrong stages. It was a yeah. whole thing. Day <laughs> one was, was day fiasco. three and it was, yeah. <laughs> Huggy sitting there at dinner at Denny's like, we're going to do this. And we're like, uh, sure. Like he had his binder. It was a whole thing. Yeah. To me, a part of visualization as a skill is being able to, to go to a stage and create a plan that's at least halfway sensible in a reasonable amount of time. Because at least, at least for me, like when I show up to visualize a stage, even the day prior, I'm going through and figuring out what all the options basically are, what I think the rest of the squad will probably do in terms of what, what all the positions are you have to go to. And I'm trying to get a general sense of like what the options are and not necessarily specifically what I'm going to do, right? Mm -hmm. Unless it's like a super cut and dry, like you're going to shoot the stage in one direction, or it's like an L where you're going to just go through one branch and then the other, or there's something yeah. that's like there's there's no way to do it to skin the cat a different way. If there's any sort of you know options or any potential for conjecture or discussion, I'm not going to seal in a plan with specific visualization ahead of time because I don't want to be locked in. I want to be able to make a decision in the moment and then just you know do the, do the repetition from there. Right. Like to, I think the part that people miss is, is if you think about it, if you're like a C class dude, right? You just think about the average stage that you shoot. Think about 
like the timed errors that you have like on the course of an average stage when you're about when you're in that approximate skill level right like people have extra shots on steel you know if you're really unlucky maybe you have like a standing reload or you're kind of eating a reload like you know in the middle of a position or you know you go to the wrong target and oh fuck that's not it you go back to another one you have small (laughs) errors like that that happen all the way through right that are like they're 0.6 Point eight, you know, one, 125, like all those add up really quickly and having a visualization program that's really locked in that allows you to just like know what the next thing is and instantly go to the next task. Like that's going to cut more time than like having the better plan and then still half-assing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. He's laughing because you literally just described. <laughs> Explain what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This guy <laughs> right here. Yeah. Especially when you started with steel. I was like, yep. That's- yep. My nemesis. <laughs> well, he needs a, he needs an extra mag when there's steel on the stage. What I will say is, I feel like at the end of this, we're gonna have to like Venmo you because this was yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or Cash App or whatever kids are doing nowadays. <laughs> like literally, you uh-huh. just started talking. I'm like, oh, cool. He must. Dave must have told him every match I've ever tried. <laughs> awesome. Well, no and he, yeah, and he shoots well, a sig. And also, I was also laughing yeah. because myself, because when you said it, I was like, remember that stage that I ran backwards from you guys? And you were like, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah, no one knew what he was doing. Like, <laughs> from everybody. Like, backwards from everybody. Like, this isn't like a Mason Lane, I'm going to run it to my strengths. This was like, I just feel like doing the opposite of what everyone else did. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it didn't go well. I'll tell you, like on <laughs> symmetrical stages, like a huge part of my decision making for what strategy I'm going to go with is is this a small enough shooting area that it's going to be a pain in the ass for me to go to do a salmon run up the stage through everyone else as they're trying to walk through the stage during the five minutes? It's like, if the answer is yes, like I want to be like, Oh, Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Excuse me. The whole way through. Like I'll just follow the pack. Like just for that reason. Like it's, it's literally, it's that simple on, on, on some level. It's like, it doesn't matter if I think the other plans better. If I'm not going to be able to get a nice proper visualization more than once during the five minutes, that's enough of a factor for me to go to make a decision on. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely had that happen before because I, I ran a stage almost exactly opposite, and it was at Shadowhawk, so it was local up here. And I did it the exact opposite as everyone else, and it went well for me, but I was like, this run-through was not going well. I keep bumping yeah. it on the camp. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Like, I know you're a GM. I'm just going to – just kind of – yeah. That's an uncomfortable feeling when you got somebody who's way better than you, like, bro, can you move? And you're like, just, just one second. I got to go – opposite it's only irritating when you find people that are like they're perpetually like i have to make sure i find a different way to do this it's yeah like no mine was just the one time different yeah, is one. not often better right like pe- right. you definitely find people that's like an archetype of shooter like they want to find a way to, a different way to skin the cat just that like people think they're clever or whatever it's like if if you know if, if nine tenths <laughs> of the squad is doing it the same way there's a decent chance that there's a reason right right and it's not just like social conformity it's like they're they're probably it's a level of simplicity to this (laughs) yeah it looks simple to me i was like hey why don't i just do it this way (laughs) it's one too many head-to-head yes you know in football cte thank you that's what it is thank you thank you (laughs) so so Mason, I, I'm curious. When we interviewed um, Jacob Hetherington and John Browning, mm-hmm. and we talked about visualization, like during your make ready, 
they talked about they do a visualization as fast as they can. Like they run through it in their mind as quickly as they can. Mm-hmm. Is that, do you do that similarly or? That's not something I would do during the, the actual, like you get the make ready and then you do that. That's something I'll do as a litmus test, like before then to make sure I know the plan front to back. Right. So by doing mm. it like in fast motion like that and making sure you can recall the level of detail you're supposed to, that makes sure that there's no hesitation. Like if you can just go bang, 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 bang through like all the, all the points in your visualization, then you know that you have it down. If that makes sense without taking any time yeah. to think about it. It that's that's something that I do as well, uh, just to make sure that I know what's going on. But the visualization, t- to me, I break it down into into specific points on targets, and I I call them touch points or visual points, where basically every action on the stage, down to every transition, has some kind of a point that I'm going to attach to it, so that I can visually work my way through the problem, right? So, like, say you have El Prez, for example, just because that's an example everyone will know. The visualization points are going to be something like knuckle on the underside of the trigger guard, right? Contact point, like in the front of my grip where my support hand is going to meet the gun. And then I'm zooming my vision out to the exact spot in the middle of like the first target. And, you know, from there you can engage the target or whatever. But the, the visualization process is exact spot on target A, B, and C, snapping the precise point in each one of those. And then you're going to basically visually do a transition from the last spot on the last target to your magwell as you initiate the reload, right? So that there's a point there on your actual magwell. And then you do a visual transition from here back out to the surface in the next target and rinse and repeat one, two, three with the exact spots there. And of course, the more complicated it is, the more important it is that it's that specific, right? Like if you have any partialing or anything like that on targets where you can't just aim at like the general brown part of the target, you have to make sure you're maximizing points based on whether or not it's actually difficult or how you want to mitigate the risk. So picking an exact spot on those sorts of targets is really important. Of course, if you're doing movement at all, right? Like look, doing a transition from the last shot on the target to the exact spot you want to go to, right? It gives you a cue to get out of shooting mode here, look at the spot and run as hard as you can to the next spot, et cetera, et cetera. Literally any action on the stage has some sort of a spot that you're going to snap your eyes to. You're going to treat it like it's a transition from spot here to spot here. And it tells you to get (laughs) onto the next thing. It creates basically a stack of cues that you can then go through. And then, like you mentioned, you can play like and fast forward and know as long as you have all those points in order, you're going to know exactly what to do without thinking about it. That is way more detailed than I expected. Wow. Yeah, it has that to is... be that detailed. It, it has to, or it's not actionable, really. And the picking wow. an exact spot is, is debatably the most important thing. You can't just know like what the targets are like generally – like based on, you know, pacing or, you know, approximate difficulty. Like you have to look at the exact spot because when you snap your eye to the exact spot, you're following the script that you've written for yourself, right? You snap your eye to the exact spot. It gives you so much more information when your sight is relative to an exact spot than it does when it's on the general middle of a target, if that makes sense, right? If I look... Absolutely. If you look at like the exact middle of my nose and you know, your, your, your sight comes over and it lands like up near my eyebrow, you're going to know exactly where your sight is. Or if you look at my whole face and the, the sight comes over and it lands near my eyebrow, you're going to know it's like t- sort of towards the middle of my face. Does that make sense? All right. So Absolutely. Like, using that level of specificity, it gives you way better perception of, of where your sights are and your shot calling ability goes through the roof, even though it feels a little bit more out of control when you're first learning to do it. I, I also feel like, it makes your shot calling way easier because if you're the more focused on a point you are, 
the less likely you are to pull the trigger when the dot's not where you're focused. Right. And so at, that's the important part concept that people sort of get confused on too, is when you initiate transition, right? I'm like, I'm coming off one target. My eye snaps to this spot. You have to pick that very exact spot. I always say like a golf ball size spot on the target because for most targets, that's that's something people can conceptualize as with an adequate level of specificity. You snap that golf ball size spot. When the sight comes into the target, right, you're not only shooting once your dot makes it to the exact golf ball size spot, like on the letter A. You're going to shoot if it's, you know, what you feel is in an appropriate aiming zone, which may be anything from, you know, a... a a tennis ball size group if it's a really difficult or challenging or risky target all the way up to a watermelon size group as it paints over the whole a zone right but you still have to keep your eye peeled into that exact precise spot as you're doing that and you know based on the relative distance from your site to where you're looking you're going to know if if that's if you're complying with that or not yeah you definitely get used to knowing when that dot is at an acceptable spot if you're looking at the same spot all the time so yes and there's obviously okay. like on risky targets, like I, I program in like, you know, you can think about in terms of confirmation in terms of like how, what, how, how still you need the site to be. But it's also like, I'll usually just draw, like I'm going to, if, if I have a partial where it's like, it comes up to like halfway up the middle of the A and it's white from there down. I know I'm just not going to like get on the trigger if the dot isn't like the lower half of, of that A zone, because it's just, that's. As you're just taking on more risk at that point. I don't think about it like, oh, well, if the A zone is this big, I know it's like a six by six box, then I have a six by six acceptable hit zone. It's like I'm going to play even safer than that by zooming in my acceptable zone to like, you know, a, a softball size group, if you will, or a baseball size group or whatever it is. And you don't need to think about it that specifically when you're doing the actual following the visualization because it's just way too much information to wrestle. But as long as you have those exact points that you're snapping your eye to, you're going to be on, on the right track. Okay. That's very detailed. <clears throat> now, at what point did you decide you were going to start your own training company? Uh, I was, well, I mean, I was in college and I, I needed to do something. I was doing, working for maintenance at a local PD, uh, cleaning cars and doing, you know, odd jobs and stuff like that. And I had all kinds of inquiries to start doing training. Oh, I, I Whoa. Sorry about that. Go ahead. I was, had helped out with a couple classes before at the SIG Academy and stuff like that. And I had taught a couple classes on my own at the SIG Academy. And around that time, I realized like there's enough clientele in this area that I could easily do it on my own and make more money basically and get the same job done. So while mm. it was a supplemental income sort of thing to getting into, you know, while I was in school, it, uh, it rapidly became an amazing learning exercise for me and realized that it was something that I could do to, in effect, you know, make shooting my job without being a, a pro shooter as such, which is when I really, I realized I wanted to do it. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible learning opportunity just to, to force yourself to make case studies out of all your clients and make assessments on what it is they're doing wrong and how they can fix it. And then above all, be able to articulate to them how and why they should do it. Dude, that sounds okay. like a great thesis paper. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely, it's, it's that's that was I probably never would have gotten into it if it wasn't a for being in school and thinking of you know being forced to think critically every day and b meeting my now wife who is has a business of her own in a totally unrelated field but uh, I was not like open or aware of of entrepreneurship sort of as a career field prior to that point just because both my parents were in public service and they're very risk averse by nature. Uh, so I don't regret it at all, but that was that was sort of how I got into it. 
if you don't mind me asking, what is her business? She's a farrier, so she puts uh, shoes on horses. Oh, okay. okay. I'm going to interrupt here. Like Coolest <laughs> job on the planet, by the way. It's it's pretty cool. And there's yeah. a lot of cool stuff to do in your life. Like shooting. <laughs> Coolest job ever. It's pretty cool. It's cool when when you have good clients in terms of like cool people and cool horses. When when either of those two things stop being the case, it can dramatically and rapidly become less cool. But yeah, what, what I, I will say, tell you right now is this guy right here watches barriers on YouTube because it is that interesting. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. It is. That's a boss job right there, man. Now I will pay you for a psychological breakdown of Leo. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. It is. Do, do you understand? Like this, they got to work fast. You're working with animals. You're working with horse people. They're horrible, big animals, by the way. So right. if you have horses, you just you're 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 a special. You're on, kind a, of you're on a watch list somewhere. Yeah, but yeah, it is. I mean, that's good for her. That is impressive. Yeah, it's pretty. Cool. I'd say like where I grew up at, it's known as horse country. So. I'm around, I grew up around horses all the time, and I have actually seen farriers, and I'm like, I agree with you. If the horse is not having a good day, you know, it's like it ain't wanting you around. It's it's a pain in the butt trying to get that horse to well, cooperate. Yep. And if, if you know horse, horse people, you know also it's everyone has a different ideology on how they want oh, yeah. to spin the cat. And something yep. about being responsible for the welfare of an animal makes people especially – passionate and vocal about how their method is best. So yeah, you end oh, up yeah. with, with situations where all, all a horse really needs is a good ass kicking. And that's yeah. not always on the table because it's yeah. precluded by, you know, the people involved. The owner. And oh yeah. The owner is like, Oh my God, part. you can't, you can't do that to my horse. And it's like, it's a horse. Okay. Or you, or you, you, you show up to a <laughs> client's house for the first time and they're like, Oh, I had this other fairy and he hit my horse with a rasp. And then you immediately start, like go to pick up its foot and it's like like throwing passes at you like with its back yeah. you're like all right cool i see what's going on here yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is gonna be a one and yeah. done this is a this is, is a very small group of humans that that can do that job and do it well and yep. uh, i am very impressed by the skill because it is it is not just skill there's some artistry involved in that yeah um, <laughs> but yeah it's i know we got off topic with horses and whatnot but man i just got a lot of respect for farriers no, we so. we started at a tangent at like one fifteen, so if people don't give a shit, they can they can skip over it. Yeah, fair <laughs> <point>. <laughs> yeah, touche. Yeah, my horse bloodied my nose last week. Yeah, <laughs> this one, That's, this little mini horse right there. That's yeah, right. pretty big. Nope. But yeah, and yeah. we're we're big fans of the entrepreneurial spirit here. So absolutely, of yeah, of course. America. All right, so I made sure you didn't see this part because. We're going we're gonna to do a quick grading on you and your video review capabilities. Okay, Mason? It's okay. a very quick video. At the end, you just let us know what correction needs to be made so this doesn't happen again. All right. Do you know Dave Wampler? Yep. Okay. Dave is in this video. Here we go. Oh, I see what he's saying now. And I'm like, oh, oh. And I'm like, okay, that, that wall. Oh. And then, <laughs> Are you okay, Leo? I know it's not loaded, and I know he's not going to shoot me, but he's literally pointing that at my image right now, and it's freaking me out, man. I know it's just you're you're like, well, for me, where are you at? You're. Yeah. Like I could have died. 
<laughs> in a strictly hypothetical sense, yes. That's what, that's, what Bruce, that's what Bruce Gray would call an overprep. Yeah. <laughs> overprep. Okay, yep. Just All right. A plus. A plus. Yeah. All right. We can recommend them for video reviews. It's good. Holy mackerel. <laughs> Never oh. gets old. <laughs> nope. It doesn't. I don't have a lot of nice features, but my face being intact is somewhat important. Thanks, Mason. Oh, that's, true. That's, that's, why, that's why now I'm on the bottom and he's up top now. Yeah. <laughs> that way he only shoots our guests. Good. 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 Oh, right. goodness. So overprep. Got it. Okay. Good. Now you know how you don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm good on that. No overprep. Right. Easy fix. No overprep. Easy that's fix. Right. Again. We're just going to oh. need your Venmo at the end of this so we can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> gonna be, this is going to be the most expensive interview we've ever done. And we are ever. not sponsored. Trust me. <laughs> By anybody. Yeah. All, right. <laughs> All right. Switching gears a little bit. I also noticed that you have uh, you had on your um, Instagram page a picture of the Virginia 2020 Lobby Day. Where there were uh, like upwards of 50,000 people in Richmond. Um. Oh, it's we're advocating for their Second Amendment rights, and I also noticed that you even posted something on your page about contacting, as you had put it, the AFT about some changes they wanted to make to some things. <laughs> so, are are you? Do you consider yourself a big advocate in that way, or? I mean, obviously, my entire job is predicated on people having access to guns and wanting to get better with them. So, I mean, it's, yeah, on some level, for sure. Okay. All right. Do you, is there, are there, like, I'm, I'm a member of the Virginia Citizens Defense League, which they're a big, they were the ones who organized that lobby day. They, uh, they organize it every year. Do you do anything like that up in New Hampshire, or are you a member of any of that type of thing, or? No, not really. Uh, I'm, I'm probably not as involved with that as I ought to be, and in part just because our state is, is really is pretty staunchly pro-gun, and uh, it, it seems to be staying that way, in spite of the fact that it's becoming increasingly blue from people bleeding up from Massachusetts and other college states. kind of surrounded. Yeah. yeah, but it's it seems like the, the will of the people is pretty well consistently not violated by the politicians we elect, even the ones that are not on you know, the side of the aisle where that would traditionally be the case. So I haven't, it hasn't been strictly necessary for me to do that. So I'm not really particularly involved with it beyond sharing how I feel about specific issues like that. Okay. Now, do you have a website for your training? Yeah, it doesn't really do anything though. If you want to get a hold of me to get to get to contact me for training, you should probably just, you know, contact me on Instagram or Facebook. It's uh, Mason Lane shooting with spaces on both, uh, or you just send me an email at uh, masonlane.lsat at gmail. That'd be the best way to get a hold of me. Okay, I, and, I did and notice that. And what's your Venmo? Because I've got to send money to you. <laughs> <laughs> I I did notice you posted your very first video review of yourself. Yes. Yeah, I just recently got some some new uh, software and hardware that is a little bit more appropriate for getting those done. So I'm starting to do more of them. I've been telling people for about a year that I'm going to start doing e-training ever since COVID fired up and people aren't able to get out and do their thing quite so much. I've been saying I'm going to do it. Now I finally have the ability to do it. So I've started doing it for real. So I threw up a little sample 
of uh, one of the stages I shot at limited nationals with me sort of breaking down what my goals were in terms of the visualization and some of the stuff that went wrong too. A uh, question for you. Uh, now I know just backing up just a little bit, you were talking about dry firing and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, do you, is there a particular system that you use? Um, like, for example, I use a cool fire training system in mine because I shoot a Canik, um, and which is nice because it gives you right, the, from the video, sponsor. right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To detail, Huggy. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, no Mace. <laughs> Again, I will send you the money. <laughs> I, I don't really uh, – I haven't used any of those. Uh, okay. I know I've, I've messed around with the Cool Fire Trainer, and the part about it that, that slightly annoyed me was it, it, it. you have to charge it up like every 10 rounds if you're, if you're clicking on it more than like once per second or so. Yes, sir. So it's a cool tool and stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like if I think there's probably a specific audience that would really benefit from that, but I've, I don't – to me, most of the gadgets and stuff like that, the main benefit of it is making dry fire, you know, that much more interesting to make you want to do it more. Like there's nothing that you can't get done with, with just your regular gun. And as long as you have weighted mags, like there's, there's really no limitations on how far you can take that. Like there's always going to be on some level, some small disconnect between what happens in dry fire and what happens in live fire. But if you're really diligent and really honest with yourself, as far as what's happening visually and what's happening with all your muscle tensioning, you know, from your shoulders on down to your hands. It's there's nothing you can't do with just your regular equipment. So I don't I don't really use any of that stuff to be honest. Okay. Well that's great. And here's and you made a mention of uh training, weight training. Um do you do any particular type of weight training to strengthen your shoulders and you know your traps and shoulders uh you know during the off season or even during season? What what kind of exercises do you do? I don't do as much of that stuff as I should. Uh, most of the, 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 I think the most, the thing most people are benefited from most is just keeping your hands, you know, like hardened and be used to, to gripping onto the gun for long periods of time. So, I mean, if you do like pull-ups and stuff like that, I think that's just, that's part of what's been most beneficial for a lot of people that I've talked to just because it works all of the requisite muscles. But yeah. uh, most people are honestly plenty strong enough to get to get done when we get done. Like if you're like, you know, grossly out of shape and that's one thing, like you're, you know, you're going to be bogging down at the end of a long day. That's one thing, but there's not really any physical limitation on how far you can go. The most physical exercise or like physical maintenance I'll do is pretty comprehensive stretching. So when I, I do pretty much every time I lie fire, I'll do detailed stretches with, you know, from all the way up through my shoulders at a minimum. So I do my fingers backwards and frontwards, you know, at extension with my arms all the way out. I'll do like, you know, biceps, triceps and shoulders every which way I can. And I do find that especially doing your, you know, your forearms by doing your individual digits and stuff like that, that does all unlock a lot of dexterity and grip strength off the bat without having to really like warm up your hands in the traditional way, which I find valuable, especially for matches. Like if, if you can make that a part of your, you know, every time you sort of get into training or get ready to go shoot stages and stuff like that, if you work that in there, it's going to unlock a lot of grip strength, which is of course a good thing. You don't want the gun to feel foreign in your hands when you're going out to go shoot stages. Awesome. Thank you again. I need the Vimbo to send you that info, <laughs> the money. <laughs> yep. I do think the stretching is really valuable and not just for like getting into low ports and stuff like that. It's, it's, you know, stretching in general is, is good for maintenance for all parts of your body. And I do think that, you know, doing the hand stretches and arm stretches, I always try to do that at a minimum. 
if I'm ever going to go do actual like movement training or anything like that, or definitely if I'm going to go shoot a match, I'll do pretty much my whole body. I'll spend like half an hour doing it before I go to the range in the morning, like when I'm at you know nationals or whatever the case is. Right. Okay. Yeah, low ports, low ports, and me, we get along too well. Yeah, I'm not a huge <laughs> fan either, as you can probably imagine. Yeah, it's a long way down. Oh, it's a long way up for me it's, too. It's it's the uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the Williams sisters and the Gabby Francos of the world that love those low ports. Yeah. Yep. Leo, you have anything? I I have one question. Uh, you were an Eagle Scout, correct, or are mm-hmm. an Eagle Scout? Sure. What was you your Eagle say Scout it. project? Uh, so I grew up in and around a state park, like right on the shore of my folks house shared a board with the state park and in that state park they had during the depression they had the civilian conservation corps where basically they were just manu- like printing jobs they're just trying to create jobs to give people work and uh you know giving people money for getting whatever work done they can and so the triple c created like sort of wilderness shelters in the park and a few various places like sort of three shot three sided like stall style shelters with a couple cots and stuff in them and there's one that's like way out in the middle of nowhere. Like it's not marked by any trails or you'd never find it unless you already knew it was there. And it was literally dubbed the lost shelter. And I found it one day. We, we looked for, it was like part of our, like our project, you know, part of the project, of course, is just finding the thing because we knew it existed at least on paper, but we didn't know how to find the thing. And so we found it and it was in horrible, horrible shape. So we put a new roof on the thing over a course of, you know, pretty much a whole year having to lug stuff back and forth through the woods, like, you know, beams and shingles and planks and what have you. And we put a new roof on it and a couple other things around the area. And uh, that was that. It ended up being like a six or 700 hour project, which was pretty, wow. pretty considerable. It was, it, it was like a, a, you know, a part-time job at a minimum for a whole year and a full-time job during the actual construction process. <clears throat> all right, cool. That's all I had. <clears throat> I just have one request. Um, number one, congratulations on your marriage. Thank you. <clears throat> number two, um, if by chance Matthew Nash is up there again and we have him on the podcast, if you could just have some better Wi-Fi so he doesn't have to drive off the property, um, you know, just a thought. That's all. I mean, in yeah. fairness, it was a nice backdrop. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, the service is pretty bad around here. We didn't get cable internet in our area till like March of this year, I think. So it's... makes googling stuff pretty difficult. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, that means you have to read more. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Still no USPS. Most of the military guys. So <laughs> yeah, all of them practically. Yeah. Um, so no USPSA till about 2016, and no internet until 2021. You got you guys are making progress. All right. Yep. Yeah, we're running water day. before you know it. Yeah. There, there you go. Twenty <laughs> first century is right around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, Mason, that's. Sat- I was going to say the old satellite dish. That works wonders now. Yeah, that was it. Was that was all we had for quite a while at this place? We're, we're surprisingly close close to town, but I have really crappy internet in our area, so it's wow. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. So runs like the maple syrup. Yeah. Slow. Yeah. Well, Mason, that's all I've got. Is there anything you want to promote or reiterate or anything? 
no, I I think this is a good time, guys. If you want to, uh, if you want to book awesome. me for training, just get a hold of me through whatever means you have available. Social media is fine. You send me, you know, if you get a hold of me through social media looking for training, I'll probably ask you to contact me through my actual business account, uh, which again is masonlane.lsat at gmail. So that's pretty much it. All right, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. It was a great time. We appreciate it for sure. Of course, man. No problem. Glad to be on. All right. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. Thank you.